the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, 602 I was talking about this proposal for a reality czar in the Biden White House uh, in the last hour. You know, an office in the White House to check the news, to fact-check the news, fact-checked, fact-checked, to fact-check opinion. Someone said, why don't you just create your own newspaper and call it Pravda or Truth? Why not just have a government newspaper? Listener Jim writes, so the mainstream media backs the team that wins the trifecta of politics at the cost of the public's trust, and now that new administration wants to create a bureaucratic entity that attacks the First Amendment. Am I the only one that sees this as an orchestrated plan by the administration and the media to paint the mainstream media as victims in order to reestablish the public's trust and erase the last four years of the deceitful conduct? Or am I simply pulling a Don Quixote chasing at windmills? Uh, both, maybe. Maybe, James, both. Pulling a Don Quixote chasing at windmills. What a great image. What a great image from Cervantes, right? You ever see the Man of La Mancha, Bill? You know that story, the story of Don Quixote? Somewhat, uh, somewhat um, incapacitated, mentally incapacitated uh, uh, knight errant. And the idea of chasing at windmills, you've heard the expression before, probably you have, you haven't? Chasing at windmills, and he goes and charges on his horse with his, you know, with his uh, saber, charging um, at what he thinks are enemy enemies, uh, enemy enemy knights coming at him on horses, but they're windmills, they're windmills. He, fantas- he has this whole fantasy in his head that he's, it's actually a beautiful musical, Man of La Mancha, You've heard certainly the song To Dream the Impossible Dream, haven't you? Yeah, that comes from Man of La Mancha. I think we have some of it in our bumper, I think. Anyway, yeah, okay. Anyhow, uh, I digressed for a moment there, but that's all right. That got us our cultural segment uh, in the culture and politics part of this show. What was the uh, other thing? Oh, yes. Yeah, the crossroads of culture and politics. Um, Tragic. Uh, in Florida, just tragic. Two uh, FBI agents killed and three wounded, trying to um, trying to serve warrants on uh, child pornography in Florida. You don't see many stories about FBI agent deaths, and uh, so we uh, mourn them as we thank them for their service. Whenever I hear about a death of a cop or a law enforcement officer. I'm brought back to Chesterton and what he wrote at the turn of the last century. By dealing with the unsleeping sentinels who guard the outposts of society, it tends to remind us that we live in an armed camp, making war with a chaotic world 
and that the criminals, the children of chaos, are nothing but the traitors within our gates. When the detective in a police romance stands alone and somewhat fatuously fearless amid the knives and fists of thieves' kitchen, it does certainly serve to make us remember that it is the agent of social justice who is the original poetic figure, while the burglars' footpads are merely placid old cosmic conservatives happy in the immemorial respectability of apes and wolves. The romance of the police is thus the whole romance of man. It is based on the fact that morality is the most dark and daring of conspiracies. It reminds us that the whole noiseless and unnoticeable police management by which we are ruled and protected is only a successful night errantry. Think of that. Think of that. When's the last time you heard a tribute to the police, law enforcement like that, and how they stand as the sentinels in a chaotic world? Um, we, we, we have to be reminded that that chaotic world is, yes, what Chesterton said, traitors within our gates. And I suppose that's why so many of us have been so darn offended by the double standards over when the police is necessary, when they're not necessary. And I don't care if we're talking about police. I don't care if we're talking about FBI. I don't care if we're talking about federal agents or the National Guard. They fight against traitors to our cause because our cause is, of course, civil society. And yes, these people should be seen as knights always, not to be targeted, not to be called bacon, not to be defamed en masse because they're not perfect. Keep us safe. They're stormtroopers when they're trying to protect a federal courthouse in Portland against a radicalized left-wing mob. But they're heroes, I suppose, that's what they're being called now. They're heroes now because they are evidently keeping the capital safe from a right-wing mob. It's baloney. It's baloney. Byron York was on to this. There were roughly 25,000 National Guard members in Washington for the inauguration of Joe Biden. It has been normal practice to have some National Guard in town for inaugurations, but 25,000 was way too many. The inauguration was nearly two weeks ago. Why are 5,000 National Guardsmen still there, Guardsmen and women? Why are they still there? There's no need for troops in Washington. And yet, if you go to the federal area of Washington, you'll find tall fencing and razor wire creating a huge militarized zone around the Capitol with National Guard members guarding it from inside the fence. As we are told, fences and walls and razor wire don't matter when it comes to protecting people who aren't congressmen and senators, when it comes to protecting ranchers and citizens of the United States of America. But there it is, tall fencing and razor wire with a huge militarized zone around the Capitol with National Guard members guarding it from inside the fence. The barrier is not just on the perimeter, extends for blocks beyond the building in every direction. Now the head of Capitol Police wants to make the fencing permanent, and the National Guard has not left. 
They are apparently staying at least until mid-March because theoretically authorities fear some other kind of riot from Trump supporters. Secretary of the Army John Whit- John Whit- John Whitley said, quote, there are several upcoming events. We don't know what they are over the next several weeks, and they're concerned. There could be situations where there are lawful protests, First Amendment-protected protests that could either be used by malicious actors or other problems that could emerge. Do you remember the hell Trump and William Barr were put in for clearing clearing the area right off of uh, Pennsylvania Avenue? When the rioters were there. Do you remember that? This is when Donald Trump made a show of made a show of safety by walking across the street to St. John's Church. Why are the troops staying until mid March? Pelosi, Schumer, others they want troops at the ready. I suppose during the Trump impeachment trial. I suppose, I suppose. Has Biden been asked about any of this? There are no credible threats. I, I, I have read and searched for a credible threat from Homeland Security or the Capitol Police. They produce none. And yet the guard is still there. As ours as is the fencing, as is the razor wire. So that there can be this image that the right is dangerous, that Trump supporters are dangerous. That is the message. You are seeing the the National Guard being used as a political piece of window dressing, as a political piece of propaganda. This is the greatest misuse of the military I can think of. And Donald Trump was condemned for wanting to have a military parade showing off our military and weaponry. Do you remember that? Well, there are no parades here. It's just one big showing off. Oh, are you doing are you are you doing that for me? From Man of La Mancha? All right. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Be right back. Hal writes, to begin as a prop, the the military is being used as a prop and to begin to drive a wedge between middle America and the military. Always to divide, never to unite. It's the beginning of the process of changing the military into a uniform domestic militia for the left. Watch for more purges. All ranks, not just the generals. Um, Don writes, have you noticed the ridiculous and gauche overuse of the American flag by the left? This is the way the USSR and China use their symbols of state. It seems to imply we are the true Americans. You're not by shouting symbols. Cynthia in Phoenix is calling in on something I meant to return to. Hi, Cynthia. Hi. How are you? Good. Uh, You were talking about conservative books. Yeah, I I was, and I'll reset that in a moment. Well, well, actually, if you have a second, I was. I was asked what five books I would recommend, what are the best five conservative books I've read or that I would recommend. And I got through three, and I didn't do the other two, and I'm happy to do them now or let you talk. Either way. I just – 
I don't know if you consider this a conservative book, but after reading it, I realize how important being a conservative is, and that's David Horowitz's Radical Son. Of course it is. Yes, it's a very important book. It is a conservative book, and for those who don't know it, really one of the best political autobiographies of uh, the last century, I would say. Uh, For those who don't know of David's work, he was left of the left. You know, he was born into a communist household, frankly. He, He says it. And he gets involved with um, uh, the, the most left-wing elements of America, including the Black Panthers and all that, didn't he? And uh, then became dis- one of their major papers, Ramparts, I believe it was called. And right. he got disillusioned when he saw the murder, the murders that took place in the Black Panther movement. And he became a conservative, wrote a book about it called Radical Son, and it is an amazingly good read, Yes. Okay, well, thank you very you much. You bet. Yeah, no, it's the it's the Whitaker Chambers witness book of 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 our lifetime. I, I think I think it's fair to say that uh, because um, my five books, and I'm happy to have others hear others out on what theirs would be. But mine were. I'll just as I mentioned, them, I got three out of the five out in the last hour. A new birth of freedom by Harry Jaffa about our founding and. Um, the principles of uh, natural law and natural right, um, and how um, Amer- American uh, conservatism uh, would um, would uh, do best if it embraced it again the way Lincoln did. The second was by Myron Magnet, The Dream and the Nightmare, which is the single best book I've ever read on the failures of the great society and the havoc it has wrought on society. Witness, I was just mentioning, by Whitaker Chambers, who was a communist who uh, left communism to embrace freedom. He was an editor at National Review, and he told William Buckley when he joined the board of National Review and when he left the communist movement, he said, I fear I might be joining the losing side. That was Whitaker Chambers' view. He couldn't stand communism anymore. The screams he talks about, the screams that uh, everyone who leaves communism ultimately hears, the screams in the night of the political prisoners. But he said, I fear I am joining the losing side when he left communism. Can you imagine thinking that? Well, was he right? Is he right? Conscience of a Conservative by Barry Goldwater. Uh, that's probably on almost everyone's list. People, I, I don't know why, what, what people's initial reaction is to hearing that. They may think, well, he was a United States senator, he ran for president. How, how deeply philosophical a book could it be? Very is the answer. Um, and it was, uh, obvi- he, he, he joked about and was honest about having help with the ghostwriting of it. Uh, part parts of it being done by Bozell, parts of it being done by Shattig. Um, and it is a greatly important read. If you don't think there's, you're going to find a lot of great conservative philosophy in it, you're wrong. Conscience of a Conservative by Barry Goldwater. Hugely important book. Hugely important book in the 60s. And, um, and uh, finally, I think I would suggest uh, uh, Up From Liberalism, which is a book by William Buckley. I think it was his third book. Circa 1962, I believe it was, and um, somewhere around in there. And what's interesting about it uh, to me – well, there's a lot interesting about it. Um, 
you would think if William Buckley were to write a book, if or, or if I should put it this way, you would think that if anyone were to write a book on conservatism, what is conservatism? We've talked about doing a series on what is conservatism. You would think that William Buckley would have written the book on what is conservatism, him he being the godfather of the modern conservative movement, right? He was uh, Aristotle's definition of the powers that uh, his power is the ability to make to be and make things be. Power is the ability to be and make things be, and that was um, that was William Buckley. He made things be, and he was he was he beed, so to speak. But he never wrote a book on conservatism. Never did. Turned it down time and time again. But he wrote a book on liberalism. Up from liberalism. Um, and I've uh, just always liked the way he, he concluded his preface to it. You think about liberalism in the early 60s, conservatism in the early 60s. Um, liberalism is powerful but decadent, whereas conservatism is weak but viable, he said in the early 60s. Conservatism is weak but vi- viable. Liberalism, powerful but decadent. Um, you think about the trajectory we've traveled as conservatives are in this movement from when that book came out, early 60s, 62. I, I do think it was 62. Um, think about that trajectory we have traveled since 62. Liberalism then was powerful but decadent. Conservatism was weak but viable. Uh, conservatism had its bright lights. Was it viable? Was it viable? You think about what the word viable means. Obviously, the word life is in it. Capable, doable. Um, It did some things, and it had its flickers. But one might have to ask if liberalism isn't stronger, or at at least leftism. Powerful but decadent. It's kind of interesting to think about, isn't it? What's the more powerful force in society, conservatism or liberal leftism? I would have to say today this goes back to the eternal debate I have with so many of you or discussions we have together, maybe a better way to put it, as to whether America is effectively center-right or center-left or left. I think it's left. I think it's left. And I think we are a vast minority. I know a lot of you disagree. I'm happy to have the discussion. I hope I'm wrong. I fear I'm right. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. It is a delight to welcome back also one of my favorite people in public policy, a dear old friend, Sally Pipes. She's the president and CEO of the Pacific Research Institute. She is, for my money, the nation's uh, best expert, top expert on health care policy. Her most recent book, and she has many, is False Premise, False Promise, The Disastrous Reality of Medicare for All. If you ever check out foxnews.com, you saw she had a really important op-ed there today, Biden's health care plans. This is what Americans can expect from the Democrats. And... Um, Boy, is it important we know what's coming. Dr. Pipes, welcome back to the Airwaves of Phoenix. Well, thank you, Seth. Great to, great to hear from you. And, of course, Charles Pence is best as well. So we're, we're huge fans. 
Well, uh, not as much of a yeah, – well, we could get into mutual <laughs> corruption here. I'm a bigger fan of you and Charles, uh, and deservedly, uh, that's, the right, that's the right way. You, you two are my teachers. Uh, Dr. Sally, um, Sally Pipes, talk to me about what Joe Biden did last week and what we can expect. Well, as you know, Joe Biden was inaugurated on January 20th. The Republicans lost those two Senate seats in Georgia, sadly. So the Senate is 50-50 with Kamala being able to break the tie on any Senate issues. He had said during the campaign, Seth, when he was um, running, well, when he was trying to get the nomination against Bernie Sanders, that he didn't support socialized health care. He supported building on Obamacare, and he supported the public option. So, you know, right now with that makeup of the Senate and also the House having a slim majority, it's going to be very hard for him to get his um, public option through Congress and also to get single payer. So he has a number of things that he's been doing. And, of course, on Thursday of last week, he introduced the executive order, um, the special enrollment period, which has been expanded um, from February 15th until May 15th of this year, and also adding $50 million for advertising on Obamacare and for um, assistance for people to get registered on the exchanges. Now, someone would say, oh, he expanded the uh, open enrollment period. That's a good idea. You say? Well, I say no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) This was a short interview. Okay. (laughs) No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. We're having fun. Go ahead. There's only, you know, if you look, so this this expansion of of the open enrollment period going from uh, February 15th to May 15th, you know, covers only the people that are, you know, signing up for healthcare.gov the government exchange, which covers 36 states. But, Seth, I believe the other states, well, that you know, the states that aren't on healthcare.gov that have their own exchanges, they will they will do the same. I was but just going to ask if there isn't kind of this sotto voce effort, or maybe more than that, effort to push them in that direction. I was just going to ask that, yeah. Well, well, absolutely. And when you think that, you know, 8.3 million on healthcare.gov right now, and a total in the country of all exchanges of 11.4 million, we're a country of... 330 million people. There is a reason why people did not sign up, have not been signing up in droves for Obamacare and the exchanges, because the average premium for um, someone on the uh, getting a silver plan on the exchange, Seth, is over $500 a month. Who can afford that? I mean, really, who can afford? I mean, obviously, there are people who can afford it. But by and large, what majority of Americans can afford that? Well, they can't. And also, when you look at a deductible of, of $5,000, $5,500, meaning you have to have that money in your in your bank account to cover before your insurance even kicks in. So, you know, this is, um, as I say, this is window dressing. You know, the, the issue is, too, that people, I think people have forgotten, or the mainstream media hasn't picked this up. But under Obamacare, if you lost your job or you were, you know, in some sort of domestic abuse situation or you had a death in the family, and you lost your coverage, you could sign up for the Affordable Care Act exchanges at any time. Okay. So this really is nothing, this is just, this is nothing new. I mean, he says... It's taking an emergency and making it a normalized practice, basically. Right, exactly. Um, Sally, uh, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is, you know, the the issue of subsidies. And I, I think my producer told you this is a short segment we have a, a much longer one we can we can unload a little bit more from your op-ed if, if you'll bear with me through the commercial break i'd be i'd be so um, sure. so Absolutely. delighted we'll go through because there's a lot more to this as well and i want to talk to you also about how you would see um um 
how you would see conservative reform, what you would think of as a free market-based set of health care reforms, which I know you've written so much about. We've talked about on our various uh, visits um, a lot about, but it seems the Republican Party never, never really – never really picks up that flag until maybe, you know, late October of odd-numbered years. I'm Seth Leibson. She's Dr. Sally Pipes from the Pacific Research Institute. Her piece at Fox News, Biden's health care plans, this is what Americans can expect from Democrats. She'll fill us in more on more of that when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Privileged to have Dr. Sally Pipes with us. She's the president and CEO of the Pacific Research Institute. Her most recent book, False Premise, False Promise, The Disastrous Reality of Medicare for All, has an important op-ed at foxnews.com about what the Democrats plan to do to your and my health care. Sally, one of the things I wanted to ask you about that you're writing about was this issue of the expansion of subsidies. Can you say a word about that, too? Oh, absolutely. So under the current Obamacare, people with income levels between 100 and 400 percent of the federal poverty level, a family of four and income up to 105,000, they are eligible for a subsidy. Um, Mr. Biden wants to, and the subsidies are tied to the price of the Silver plans on the exchanges. Okay. Biden wants to change the um, the plan the, uh, to the um, gold plan from the silver plan, which would be even much more expensive sure. for us, the taxpayer. And the second thing is that he um, wants no one to have to pay more than eight point five percent of their income on on premium. So that's going to be a tremendous um, expansion as well. But that the other thing is that people don't realize that. The people that were on the 86 percent of Americans on the exchanges who get the subsidy, um, two million of them dropped coverage when they moved outside that 400 percent of the federal poverty level because they couldn't afford the premium. No, of course. Right. Right. So. So, you know, he this is all part of his um, trying to move us in a stepping stone approach from Obamacare to Biden care to single payer. Sally, um. The haunting words at the end of your um, op-ed, if you could put a little color to it, uh, there is an ecosystem, an economic and market force ecosystem that we live in. We just saw it driving the rapid development of the COVID-19 vaccines. And you write, the Democrats want to trash that very ecosystem and slow medical progress to a crawl. The couple of things we've talked about are part and parcel of it. Give us a little more. Right. So... It's not in nine months that the private sector, um, uh, Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna, um, got their vaccines through the FDA for emergency use authorization December 11th and December 18th. We're probably going to see the Johnson & Johnson one jab vaccine uh, going for emergency use authorization within the next month. AstraZeneca, um, their um, AstraZeneca-Oxford vaccine, two jabs in in. England is doing incredibly well. The private sector um, responded so fast, and Pfizer took no money from the government in order to develop uh, their their vaccine. But what the uh, people like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the AOCs of the world want to do, they want to put price controls on drugs, which will destroy the uh, innovation, the research and development, which it costs about two point six. Um, billion dollars from an idea to get a drug through to the market. So it's very, very expensive. If we, if Biden and, and his team get their way, the drug 
innovation and research in this country, which is being, we're so famous for this all over the world, will, will end. I mean, they're trying to destroy everything that has to do with making the economy buoyant, keeping people employed, creating new jobs, and supporting the entrepreneurial spirit, which we so strongly believe in. But, I mean, it, the whole issue with the COVID vaccines, as I say, the private sector got the drugs. They were distributed a lot. But it's in the administration, which is being done by, you know, by the government, um, um, state and federal government, the, the administering the vaccines, ca- causing all kinds of trouble, um, even with the distribution of, of, of the vaccine. It's government. And if you think that, you know, that you, you, like, you would like to have the government fully take over our health care system through Medicare for all, just take a look at how that government handled COVID-19. Yeah. And that is a microcosm of what happened. That's a great system. way to put it. That's a great way to look at it and think it through. Um, fell down on the job would be one way to think of it. Uh, Sally, assuming that um, – well, I guess the first thing I wanted to put to you before I ask the second question is this. Are you amazed with the speed at which Medicare for All became such a popular idea in this country? I, I, I When you and I started – first getting to know each other, I don't know, 20, 20 some odd years ago, and you were worried about this. We were firm. teenagers. We yeah, were teenagers. when we were teenagers, yeah. you were worried about yep. this. I was thinking, never here, never here. And it's here almost, isn't it? Well, absolutely. I mean, Bernie Sanders, you know, had had this idea in his very progressive brain for many, many years. But it was in 2016 when he was running for the nomination for the Democratic um, candidacy uh, against Hillary Clinton that it really came to the fore. And he introduced two single-payer bills in the Senate, 2017 and in 2019. Um, both of those bills were signed onto by Kamala Harris, our new vice president, and many other um, people who were very, very progressive. So, you know, as I mentioned in the beginning, the, the split in the Senate is 50-50 right now, with Kamala having a deciding vote. Very, very different, difficult, I think. Someone like Joe Manchin doesn't support Medicare right. for all. Right. But it's going to be, it's out there, and what Biden wants to do is a stepping stone approach. The issue is that people don't understand what Medicare for all means. It's single payer. The government is the only payer. Everyone would be in a VA-type system or the Medicare system. 59% of people polled say they support Medicare for all. But that's when you say to them, well, what, how, how do you think about it? What do you think about it when you'd have to pay higher taxes? And the support goes down uh, to 39%. And when you say, well, you would lose your employer-sponsored coverage, which 170 million Americans have, support goes down to 26%. So we have a huge job, Seth, as a part of your job, to tell the American people that if the government fully runs the system, it's going to be expensive and you'll have long waits. The average wait uh, this year in Canada from seeing a primary care doctor getting treatment by a specialist, 22.6 weeks, over five months. The to see a specialist in Canada. Wait time. To see yeah, a specialist. exactly. Yeah. And 300,000 Canadians come across the border every year and pay out of pocket to get treatments and diagnoses of things where they think the waiting time is too long. And not only that, that's the thing that I think your father was a doctor. Yes. One of the issues is if Medicare for all comes in, it would cost 30 to 40 trillion over 10 years. Sanders has said doctors would have to have their pay reduced by to, uh, to about 40 percent of what it is now. Their salaries would be tied to the Medicare rate. And so a lot of doctors retired early under Obamacare. Yes, that's true. They would definitely retire under this. And the best and brightest kids would not go into medicine. Well, I was just going to say, I don't think tuition at the medical schools would go down commensurate to that raise. Right. I just don't no, think they would. No. They never do. No, exactly. Right. No, no. 
Well, Sally, um, thank you for sounding the warning call. I, this has been the great challenge during the election campaign, of course, uh, challenge you you had as well. I mean, trying to explain the theoretical problems to people. Well, they're now going to see the actual. And uh, when, when they see that their health insurance is going to be made more expensive and more difficult to use – Maybe they'll start listening more to um, more to the to the to the to the warnings that you're giving. And um, boy, Sally, you are right on it. And I just I appreciate your time to sketch it out for us today. I really do. Well, thanks, Seth. We've got a lot to talk about over the next four years. Yeah, we'll it's stay close. A yeah, disaster. Yes, you bet. Okay. We're going to hang together or hang separately, Sally, as yeah. someone famous Good. once said. All right. well, thank God you bless so you and love to Charles, please. And we'll talk yes, again we'll very yeah. soon. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. We'll be right back. Well, it's always good talking health care with Sally Pipes. The one thing you can do for your health, the probably best thing you can do, I believe this with all my heart, because it's the best thing I've done for my health in over a year. Let's take balance of nature every single day. I take it every single day. Balance of nature is, I think, one of the greatest products that has come to market when it comes to whole food, fruits, and vegetables in supplement form. All natural, vine-ripened fruits and veggies. They're all picked at their peak of ripeness. No chemicals, GMOs, no sugars, no preservatives. They have this unique cold press process that provide that uh, – that uh, keeps and preserves the vitality of the nutrients. You get tens of thousands of nutrients in a daily dose of balance of nature. Good stuff, potent stuff, aloe, cherry, mango, pineapple, papaya, garlic, cayenne, celery, onion. As I say, 10 servings of fruits and vegetables in one daily dose. And they have a great special, 35% off and free shipping on any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies, give them a call at 800-2468-751 or go to balanceofnature.com and make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Balanceofnature.com, use discount code BALANCE. Someone was asking me on one of the breaks what I meant when I said William Buckley was the godfather of conservatism. Uh, or at least the modern conservative movement, and where would I put, you know, people I also talk about. You hear me talk about my teacher, Harry Jaffa, a lot. That, where, where would he be? Well, people like Harry Jaffa, they said they would not have had a career were it not for William Buckley. Um, what William Buckley did in creating National Review was he created an outlet for conservatives to publish uh, and think and debate. That did not exist. It existed in a very small, narrow form of a couple other scattershot publications. But he made it one big important publication and he also got rid of what you might call <coughs> radical extremists who wanted to affiliate with the conservative movement. Um, so through his magazine, through his speeches, through his TV show Firing Line, through his writings, his columns and his debates, his famous debates, he showed that conservatism was – and could be intellectual, and he gave it its own vitality. Without him, there would be no modern conservative movement. Where is someone like Barry Goldwater? Well, he showed it could be a political movement as well as an intellectual movement, which is why the two of them were so close. 
National Review sent me their uh, National Review calendar. And the first picture, January, it's a picture of three men standing together. Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan, and William Buckley. You could do worse than that. Hugh Hallman coming up next.